Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in sections 67 through 70. This is a conference that's held in November of 1831. And during this time period of about 12 days, six revelations will be given, but we're only going to be covering 67 through 70, which is four revelations, because two of the six revelations are not in this section. One of them is section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, which will be placed as the preface to the text of the Doctrine and Covenants. And another one, section 133, was received at this time, but that would be placed at the end of the Doctrine and Covenants as a psalm to the glory of Zion, and originally was to be an appendix to these revelations. And at this conference, the church is going to determine what are we going to do with these revelations that Joseph Smith has received? And the determination was that it was to be published. And so the preface, section one, which was received at this conference, is kind of that opening of the Lord speaking to the church about the blessings of the gospel, the revelations contained, and letting the world know that these sections, that these revelations are given to the world. Now, that conference was a lot more controversial than it kind of sounds at the surface, that, oh, we had a conference, and that's when we decided to print the revelations. But there was a lot of hesitancy. There was a lot of resistance because, you know, they knew Joseph, and he was an ordinary man, and he couldn't speak very eloquently, and he certainly couldn't write very eloquently. And they must have felt a hesitance to say, really, we're going to put the revelations in his hands? Couldn't someone else do a better job? And so there was a bit of a controversy. And so if you'll go to section 67, the Lord addresses that. He says in verse 5, your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith Jr. In his language you have known, and his imperfections you have known. And you've sought in your hearts knowledge that you might express beyond his language, this you also have known. So they just don't fully grasp that whole concept of inspiration coming through Joseph. So what I love is that the Lord kind of threw down the gauntlet and gave them an experience that allowed them to testify of the truthfulness of Revelation. He says in verse 6, Seek ye out of the book of commandments, even the least that is among them, and appoint him that is the most wise among you. Or if there be any among you that shall make one like unto it, then you're justified in saying that you do not know that they are true. In other words, pick the wisest guy. And it happens to be William McClellan. William McClellan's going to step forward. Or he thinks he's the wisest guy. thinks he's the wisest. Joseph's going to say he has more learning than sense, though, which I love. William McClellan's going to step forward and says, I'll do it. So the Lord says, pick out the wisest guy and see if you can duplicate it. Just see if you can produce your own revelation, and then we'll see what you think about this. I would invite every single one of you listening to this to do that. As grueling as that experience may be, there will be great benefits that come out of it. Grab a piece of paper and a pencil 
and produce anything like these one of these revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. Another thought, Bryce, is you could pick one of the ones that you think is the least, and one of the ones I looked at, section two is super short, Yeah, but it is mind-blowing. So deep. Right. Or how about a section four that's very, very simple and yet so profound? Verse eight, if you cannot make one like unto it, you are under condemnation if you do not bear record that they are true. Joseph Smith, writing of this experience in the history of the church, says the following. After the foregoing was received, meaning section 67, William E. McClellan, as the wisest man in his own estimation, having more learning than sense, endeavored to write a commandment like unto one of the least of the lords, but failed. And then I love this insight, and this is why I would invite you to try it. I would invite each one of you to try and write a revelation, because you will come to testify of what Joseph is about to say. Joseph then says, it was an awful responsibility to write in the name of the Lord. The elders and all present that witnessed this vain attempt of a man to imitate the language of Jesus Christ renewed their faith in the fullness of the gospel and in the truth of the commandments and revelations which the Lord had given to the church through my instrumentality. And the elders signified a willingness to bear testimony of their truth to all the world. If you'll turn to the introduction of the Doctrine and Covenants, you will find that very statement that they're going to produce and they're going to put their names to. So here's my invitation. I would invite you to add your name to the list of those testifying in the introduction section that they knew they were true. What did they write, Mike? Tell us about it. So the witnesses bore witness to the truthfulness of the Doctrine and Covenants by stating The testimony of the witnesses to the book of the Lord's commandments, which he gave to the church through Joseph Smith, who was appointed by the voice of the church for this purpose, we therefore feel willing to bear testimony to all the world of mankind, to every creature upon the face of all the earth and upon all the islands of the sea that the Lord has borne record to our souls through the Holy Ghost, shed forth upon us that these commandments were given by inspiration of God and are profitable for all men and are verily true. We give this testimony unto the world, the Lord being our helper, and it is through the grace of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, that we are permitted to have this privilege of bearing this testimony unto the world, that the children of men may be profited thereby. So they put their witness to the revelations given in in these sections. And in their witness, and I believe this is a big part of this section, I believe that they were expecting a spiritual manifestation similar to the Book of Mormon. So if you remember, when the Book of Mormon came forth, there were three witnesses who beheld the plates and heard the voice of God and saw an angel. And there were eight witnesses who bore witness to the fact that they saw the plates that the Book of Mormon was written on. Now with the Doctrine and Covenants, the way the revelations work This isn't something being translated off of an ancient document. Joseph Smith is a seer, and he's speaking for the Lord. And so I think that their expectation was that they would see the Lord or have a vision or have some kind of 
great manifestation. And so if you look in verse 3, I think that's the context to section 67, verse 3, which says, you endeavored to believe that you should receive the blessings which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you that there were fears in your hearts, and verily this is the reason that you did not receive. And now I, the Lord, give unto you a testimony of the truth of these commandments which are lying before you, and then it gets into your eyes have been upon my servant Joseph Smith, and you've seen his imperfections. I like verse 4 because we just read the testimony of the witnesses. There were 10 men that were present at this conference, and two of them were witnesses to the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer. But the others were Joseph, Sidney Rigdon, William McClellan, John Whitmer, Peter Whitmer, and both of those were witnesses of the plates. Another new character in church history, a man by the name of Orson Hyde, and then Luke and Lyman Johnson. So if you think about it, four of the men that were there were witnesses to either the plates or the angel. This is a big deal. And so adding to their witness in verse 4, the Lord adds his witness, that he says, I'm bearing witness that this is true. So this is kind of neat. I like that the Lord bears witness of his words. But back to verse 3, if you look in verse 3, it's almost like the Lord is saying to them, I would have given you that witness, but there were fears in your hearts. And I think a lot of the fears in their hearts comes back to what Bryce was talking about with, they see Joseph as just a person, they see his imperfections, and I think maybe Joseph didn't meet their expectations of what they thought a prophet would be. And I think the Lord is telling them that they could have had that. And I think the invitation to them is to get their hearts right so that they could, which reminds us of the experience of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon. Remember that, Bryce, when the three witnesses prayed to have the manifestation? Yeah, and Martin Harris felt, I can't do this. I'm not worthy. I'm not ready. And he he, he removes himself. Yeah. And after he removes himself, the other three, counting Joseph as one right, of them, right. they have a very revelatory experience that Martin Harris will have later. But that's a great insight. It's interesting because I think Martin was humble, yeah, and he realized that his heart wasn't right. He got his heart right, and then he had the manifestation. What I find interesting is I don't know. I've searched the records. I don't know if Luke or Lyman Johnson ever have the manifestation that they wanted, but if you look at that list carefully of those brethren that were there, and we put their names in the show notes, all this stuff that we're talking about, these quotes and things are there. Uh, but I really find this fascinating that Sidney Rigdon, he's going to have that spiritual witness and more, isn't he? He is. Which kind of goes to, I think, our next point, and that is the Lord is clearly saying, you could have had more. And I don't want to dispute that in any way. You could have had more. But I think he's also setting up a real doctrinal point here in what is it that you expect to receive as a witness. It reminds me of the experience that Elijah had in the Old Testament, where I'm reading from 1 Kings 19, where the Lord passed by and there was a great and a strong wind that rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, 
but the Lord was not in the fire. In other words, sometimes our expectation is that revelation and revelatory experiences and, oh, I'm going to bear testimony of the Doctrine and Covenants, I need to have this grandiose, massive experience that blows me away like the wind or the fire or the earthquake. And then in 1 Kings 19, it says, after the wind, after the earthquake, after the fire, there was a still small voice. And I think one of the things the Lord is trying to set up here is what kind of witness are you expecting? Now, there's no question with added faith and added worthiness, we can get a greater witness. But there's also this idea that what do you expect Joseph to do and to be when he gets revelations? What is it that brings revelation? What grandiose experience are you looking for? So when William McClellan fails, when he cannot produce a section that's like anything else that Joseph has produced, and they prepare to write this witness statement, go to the very next section that the Lord pours out, which is section 68, and he now says something very significant. Verse 3, he says, This is the ensample unto them that they may speak as they are moved upon by the Holy Ghost. And whatsoever they, meaning the elders of Israel, meaning members of the church even, whatsoever they shall speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be Scripture, shall be the will of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord and the power of God unto salvation. Even you, William McClellan, can write Scripture if you do it by the Holy Ghost. And I love these two back-to-back because he let William try it on his own. And when he failed, he turns right around and says, but if you'll get the Holy Ghost, if you'll speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, then what you write can be Scripture. Now, not canonized Scripture that we're going to print in the Doctrine and Covenants, But you can write Scripture. You can speak Scripture. You can testify and have power. Now, do you see that message? That it's get the Spirit. Whatever massive experience they may have been expecting, whatever grandiose send an angel, shake heaven, let everything, let the very foundation of earth vibrate, whatever you think you need in order to be a witness of the doctrine and covenants, Learn the lesson that the Lord's trying to speak here, and that is, it is the witness that comes from the Holy Ghost. Testify that these revelations speak to your soul, and that the witness of the Holy Ghost says they are true. I like this as a pattern, and I like how you mentioned it's not just the elders, it's all the members of the church. And the pattern seems to be especially to missionaries and those that have callings, go take the scriptures that are revealed and then in your teaching, use them, read them, apply them, ask yourself questions. How does this apply? What is the Lord trying to say? And that as you do this, the spirit will ratify what it is you're reading or teaching. And so then the truths of the scriptures are cemented in your heart. And then in that doing of that, 
that you get more revelation, you get more understanding. It's an invitation. It is. It's an invitation. Accepting and wrestling with and trying to be able to testify of Scripture invites more revelation. Lord, I want more, and I'm trying to do everything I can to get what I can out of this section or this talk in church. So a good member of the church wrestles for a week to get the Holy Ghost to prepare a talk in sacrament meeting and stands up there to the best of their ability saying, here is the inspiration that's come to me from the Holy Ghost. And by trying to get something out of it, what am I actually doing, Mike? I am telling Heavenly Father, I want more. I am raising my hand and asking for more information. Teach me. It's an invitation for more revelation. It is. It is. I I love this. I love this quote by Bruce McConkie where he says, those who preach the gospel use the scriptures as their basic source of knowledge and doctrine. They begin with what the Lord has already revealed, but it is the practice of the Lord to give added knowledge to those upon whose hearts the true meanings and intent of the scriptures have been impressed. Many great doctrinal revelations come to those who preach from the scriptures. When they are in tune with the infinite, the Lord lets them know first the full and complete meaning of the scriptures they are expounding, and then he oftentimes expands their views so that new truths flood in upon them and they learn added things that those who do not follow such a course can never know. In a living, growing divine church, New truths will come from time to time, and old truths will be applied with new vigor to new situations, all under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. I like that so much, because how many times in a gospel teaching situation were you teaching something that you've read it a ton, and you're teaching it, and as you're teaching it, you feel the Spirit confirm in your heart that it's true. And then you can see it in the eyes of the people you're teaching, And then I've had this experience too where I'm teaching it and the Spirit's confirming it and yet there are new applications opening in my mind that I can see the Scriptures in a way I've never seen that text before and it's almost like I'm reading it for the first time. It reminds me of something I read in the Christian Science Monitor years ago. Let me just read it. Although Absalom's tomb had been neglected in recent years, A Hebrew University art history student made it the subject of a seminar paper. In 2000, the student showed a picture of the monument to Joe Zies, a physical anthropologist and a retired curator for the Israel Antiquities Authority. I looked at it and said, wait, there's an inscription. You can clearly see the Greek alpha, he recalls. Mr. Zayas found the photographer who had taken the shots years earlier and was told that, judging from the light, the photo was taken at the end of a summer day. Now he continues, I went there many times, knowing there was something there, sometimes sitting there for hours. One day, when the sun was sitting on the walls of Jerusalem, just before dusk, The conditions were optimal, and then I could see more letters. He'd been looking at this tomb for probably decades, but only when the light was just right could he see more letters on it. 
And I love that because no matter how many times you come to scriptures, no matter how many times you've read something, when the light is just right, you're always going to see something more, something that you didn't see before. So don't walk away and don't assume I've gotten everything out of this because there's always going to be more. And I think we change. Don't you think you approach it different than when you were 20? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I love the, after he says whatever, you know, in section 68, after the Lord says, if you speak by the power of the Holy Ghost, it will be scripture. He then says in verse six, wherefore, be of good cheer and do not fear. That ties us back to verse three of section 67. This conference began with fear. He says, be of good cheer and do not fear for I, the Lord, am with you and will stand by you, and ye shall bear record of me, even Jesus Christ. So a marvelous thing comes out of this conference, and that is the publication of the Doctrine and Covenants. But more than that, hopefully each one of you will come to appreciate the process of revelation and the importance of having the Holy Ghost in our lives. Joseph was an ordinary man, but he knew how to receive revelation. And it was a very simple, ordinary process. It wasn't this grandiose thing that they must have expected. It was get the Holy Ghost and you'll be able to write scripture. And all of us can do that within the sphere of our own existence especially for those that we have stewardship over. And so we're back to this idea of contraries. On the one hand, section 67, Joseph is the person that's been appointed. That's his calling. And you've seen his imperfections, but he's been a seer. But on the other hand, the Lord says, I'm inviting you to participate in this, and you can receive revelation in your sphere. And so that's one of the beauties of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is that even though there is one to be in charge, there is one to be ahead, as it were, to be the president. Joseph Smith was the, the president of the church. All of these elders that are participating in this conference are told this counsel, and I think it applies to all of us. We can receive revelation in our lives, in our sphere, and I really like that. Yeah. If you'll start there and get the Holy Ghost, the Lord's going to say, now let me show you how far you could go. He's really going to open the whole gambit here and say, I am willing to give you so much if you will drop your jealousies and your fears. So let's jump to the end of section 67. So at the end of section 67, where the Lord invites them in verse 10 to strip themselves of jealousy and fear and humble themselves, and I can't help but think back to Martin Harris, how he had that experience. The Lord promises this in verse 10 of section 67, the veil shall be rent and you shall see me and know that I am not with the carnal, neither natural mind, but with the spiritual For no man has seen God at any time in the flesh, except quickened by the Spirit of God. Go down to verse 14. Let not your minds turn back, and when you are worthy in mine own due time, so it's in the Lord's timing, you shall see me and know that which was conferred upon you by the hands of my servant Joseph Smith. And so the Lord promises they will certainly see him, but notice how he describes how it's to happen. It's to happen with their spiritual mind. In other revelations, he talks about with their spiritual eyes. 
Now, one thing we do need to point out is this is not a moment you can force. This is not something that really is totally up to you. I remind you, go to section 88, verse 68, kind of picking up this whole idea. The Lord says, sanctify yourselves that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face to you. But then the Lord adds this, it shall be in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. The point is the Lord is inviting you to have personal experiences with him. And he's showing you that you can go all the way to seeing his literal face and being in his presence. Or you could do anything in between, a spiritual manifestation, a thought, an insight. That's what the Lord is opening up to you. That's the invitation that we sanctify ourselves and we become worthy. He's going to say it in section 93. Notice it's always this condition. Verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins, there's the condition, and cometh unto me, and calleth on my name, and obeyeth my voice, and keepeth my commandments, shall see my face, and know that I am. Over and over and again in these revelations, the Lord says, I invite you to have real life revelation experiences with God himself. You can go all the way to seeing his face and knowing that he is and everything in between. When the Lord reveals section 76, which is incredible section on the degrees of glory, the Lord begins by saying, I, the Lord, am merciful and gracious to those who fear me and delight to honor those who serve me in righteousness and in truth to the end. Great shall be their reward and eternal shall be their glory. To them I will reveal all mysteries, yea, all the hidden mysteries of my kingdom from days of old and for ages to come. I will make known unto them the good pleasure of my will concerning all things pertaining to my kingdom. Yea, even the wonders of eternity shall they know, and things to come shall I show, will I show them, even the things of many generations, and their wisdom shall be great, and their understanding reach to heaven. And before them the wisdom of the wise shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent shall come to naught. For by my Spirit will I enlighten them, and by my power will I make known unto them the secrets of my will." even those things which I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor yet entered into the heart of man. There's the invitation. But if you go to the very end of section 76, he adds this, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord and the mysteries of his kingdom, which he showed unto us, which surpass all understanding in glory and in might and in dominion, which he commanded us we should write while we were yet in the Spirit, and are not lawful for man to other. Neither is man capable to make them known, for they are only to be seen and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit. So all throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord extends this invitation. You can know so much more than you do now. 
if you will put yourself in a position to receive it, if you will sanctify yourself and become the person worthy to receive those things, the Lord will pour out marvelous manifestations unto you. Yeah. The Lord says in section 67, that the veil will be rent, you'll see me and know, but then he makes a statement, not with the carnal, neither with the natural mind. Joseph Smith explains how things happen in these visionary experiences in the historical record. So if you look at verse 20 of Joseph Smith history, I love this because there's just so much in here. But in verse 20, when the Lord forbade Joseph to join any of the churches, Joseph writes, he again forbade me to join with any of them. And then he says, and many other things did he say unto me, which I cannot write at this time. I would love to get that. But when I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. Now, what does that mean? I think that perhaps Joseph is explaining that he saw the Lord with his spiritual eyes. In other words, that his spirit was taken to a place where he could behold the things of God. And I think one of the hints to this is in section 76, Joseph makes this statement about how the, their experience worked out. It reads in verse 12, By the power of the Spirit our eyes were opened and our understandings were enlightened so as to see and understand the things of God. Now, in this experience, this wasn't just Joseph. This was Joseph and this was also Sidney Rigdon. They had the experience of seeing the things of God. And we have an account from one of the people that was there when section 76 was given, and this was Philo Dibble. And Philo Dibble also participated in visionary experiences with Joseph at other times where he actually had visions. But in this account, Philo didn't see what Joseph and Sidney saw. But he says, I saw the glory and I felt the power, but I did not see the vision. And many people that watched Joseph Smith receive revelations would talk about how his countenance would change and that Joseph would see visions. And those that participated that also had these experiences described it as a spiritual sight. But there's that distinction there where the Lord over and over again says, you're not going to see it with your natural eyes, but you will see it with your spiritual eyes. And if you recall, Joseph Smith, when he spoke to the angel Moroni, in Joseph Smith history, chapter 1, verse 42, and the image that we see a lot is the image of Joseph, and he's in bed, and he's talking to Moroni. And if you've stood in the room where Joseph lay, that's a small room, and he's in that room with his siblings, and they're all there, but they're not awake. And the critics of the church say things like, well, if an angel was there, certainly it would be so light that that would wake up his siblings. But I would suggest that maybe this was a spiritual vision where Joseph sees outside of the realm that you and I call natural things or natural sight, and that in this experience, it's every much as you speaking to your spouse or speaking to your children, but yet it's with his spiritual eyes. And I love the line in verse 42 of Joseph Smith history. He's talking to Moroni. And Moroni is talking to him about where the plates are. And there's this line at the end of verse 42 that I think really is explaining how these visions take place. And it reads as follows. 
while he was conversing with me about the plates, the vision was opened to my mind that I could see the place where the plates were deposited, and that so clearly and distinctly that I knew the place again when I visited it. And that connection to something I think is important, and it's this. Joseph has a heavenly vision but it's also rooted in natural history. There really was a hill. There really were plates. And I think to Joseph, that probably really solidified his faith. Because I'm certain there's times when Joseph had these experiences and then he wondered, was that real? And then it is rooted in reality when he actually digs in the ground and pulls out the record. It really reminds me of the story as Lydia Knight as she's going west towards Utah. And her husband, Newell, has passed away. And she has a vision where she sees him. And in the vision, he tells her, though the ravens shall feed thee. He he makes reference to the ravens and that he'll be with her. And then when the vision ends, she looks up. And then on the sunset, she sees ravens. And she she even talks about this where she says, is this real? Is Is this something that's rooted in reality? And then it is. And so I just offer that to you as a way to think about Joseph's visionary experiences. And it's not just in these places in Joseph's history in section 76. It's in Moses 111, where Moses says, I beheld God, not with my natural, but with my spiritual eyes. Or Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, 3, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth. And then he proceeds to explain the vision. And so I think knowing and understanding how, I think that's important, not just because it's really good history, but I think it's really good for us to realize that the Lord communicates to us in lots of ways. And one of them is dreams. And I know some people that say in that space right between when you're not quite awake in the morning or at night, that you can be really impressionable by the things of the Spirit. So just be open to those things. Even in a more practical way, I think the the idea here is there is a place I can go to and receive revelation. I was fascinated once hearing the story about President Kimball being asked, what does he do if he's ever in a boring sacrament meeting? And he says, I don't know, I've never been in one. And then he describes the idea that I try to go to the other meeting. When I'm in a meeting, a physical meeting, and the speaker is not really prepared, I let my mind go to that other meeting the meeting with the Holy Ghost, the meeting of revelation, and there I can always be edified. And so I think in a very practical way, what we're trying to talk about is get to that place where revelation flows. Let me give a modern example, and maybe this place where revelation occurs. Many of you will remember Elder David B. Haight, a longtime member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He disappeared one conference. He was absent from one conference. And the next conference, he told us why. And he told this story. I'm reading from the October 1989 conference. He said, the evening of my health crisis, I knew something very serious had happened to me. Events happened so swiftly, the pain striking with such intensity. My dear Ruby phoning the doctor and our family and I on my knees, leaning over the bathtub for support and some comfort and hoped relief from the pain. I was pleading with my Heavenly Father to spare my life a while longer to give me a little more time to do His work if it was His will. While still praying, I began to lose consciousness. 
The siren of the paramedic truck was the last that I remembered before unconsciousness overtook me, which would last for the next several days. The terrible pain and commotion of people ceased. I was now in a calm, peaceful setting. All was serene and quiet. I was conscious of two persons in the distance on a hillside, one standing on a higher level than the other. Detailed features were not discernible. The person on the higher level was pointing to something I could not see. I heard no voices, but was conscious of being in a holy presence and atmosphere. During the hours and days that followed, there was impressed again and again upon my mind the eternal mission and exalted position of the Son of Man. I witness to you that He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, Savior to all. I knew this truth before. I had never doubted nor wondered. But now I knew because of the impressions of the Spirit upon my heart and soul, these divine truths in a most unusual way. I was shown a panoramic view of his earthly ministry. And I'll let you read the rest of Elder Haight's account. But there's that other place. There's the place where revelation flows. Get there. Don't just open up the scriptures without going to that other place. Don't just go to the temple and let your mind stay in the temple. Get to the other meeting. Get to where revelation flows. Get to the place where Heavenly Father opens up and speaks and even shows you great and marvelous things about himself. I think that's what all of this is coming down to is that the Lord is inviting us to open the doors of revelation and get in tune with him and have those experiences with him. And I love that it's still rooted in reality. I mean, when they talked about seeing Moroni, there were eight people who said, oh, we held gold plates. They really had the appearance of gold. They were heavy. We looked at the characters and they took their time with them. And so... Revelation is rooted in reality. I think both of those are so important. And I think if we sometimes just look at one side of it, we can kind of lose balance. I think a big part of section 67 was they were too rooted in reality. They'd been camping, they'd been traveling on the river, and they saw the dirt under the fingernails of the prophet Joseph. And the Lord is inviting them, okay, brothers, You've got to relax your eyes a little bit, and you've got to see the vision that I have. And so for me, I see that if I get too caught up in critical analysis of text, I can get so caught up in the weeds that I can kind of lose the spirit. But yet we don't want to be on the other side where all we're thinking about is visionary experiences and we're not cooking food for our children. We're not doing the things that we have to do to live in this mortal world. And so I love the tension And I think the Lord is introducing this idea to help us to have balance spiritually and temporally. This is good stuff. Yep. So that now leads us into section 68. Also at the conference of November 1831, we still haven't left the conference. The Lord's going to speak to several individual people. He starts off with Orson Hyde. And it's really in his comments to Orson Hyde that he gives the verses we quoted earlier about whatsoever they speak when moved upon by the Holy Ghost shall be scripture. And this Orson Hyde is a tremendous character in church history. 
Yeah. What I find fascinating about Orson Hyde is his life really does parallel Joseph's. Orson Hyde was born January 8th, 1805. Joseph Smith was born December 23rd, 1805. And they have a lot of a similar background in the sense of, you know, living in the same part of America. Uh, Orson lived in Connecticut for a while. His father actually served in the army in the War of 1812. But when Orson was seven, his mom died. And his dad had a large family, nine sons and three daughters. And he just couldn't take care of the, you know, 12 children without his wife. And so Orson was actually taken charge by a man by the name of Nathan Wheeler. Later, when he was 14, he moves to Ohio and he settles around Kirtland. And in the course of his days, he became connected with Sidney Rigdon and the Campbellites. And as a young 25-year-old, he was made a pastor over some congregations in Ohio. And so I see Orson Hyde as a parallel to Joseph in the sense of they both kind of experienced poverty, hardship. He had an interest in religion. He was attuned to the Spirit, and he loved the Bible. And so at 25, in 1830, as he's teaching these congregations, in the course of time, news of the Book of Mormon comes to Ohio. He was actually opposed to the Book of Mormon when he made public addresses. But he talks about this where he says, as he was giving these addresses against the Book of Mormon, he felt reproved by the Spirit for this course. So he suspended his opposition in order to make further inquiry. And what happened was, well, he joined the church. He read the Book of Mormon and he actually just stopped listening to what other people said about it. And he read it and he went to his father in heaven. And I like that. That tells us about the character of Orson Hyde. Now, Orson Hyde is going to be a mighty apostle of the Lord. He's going to do some great things. In 1835, he was ordained as an apostle. And in 1837, he went on a mission to England. And in 1840, Joseph Smith set him apart to go on a mission to Jerusalem to dedicate the land of Israel for the return of the Jews, which he did. If you want to read a great book about Orson Hyde, I would encourage you to read Myrtle Stevens Hyde's book called Orson Hyde, The Olive Branch of Israel. It's a great book that covers the life of Orson Hyde and cites so much from his personal journals and those that were acquainted with him because really he's a colorful person in church history, and he had marvelous experiences with the Spirit. He had struggles with his faith. He dies firm in the faith, but he has times where he really struggles. And as an apostle, he had moments where he and Brigham didn't always get along, so you kind of see some of those tensions in there. He's also a, a man that lived during the time of plural marriage and how that affected his life. In 1838, so many saints struggled with the church, especially with the tension in the Mormon War. And so in, in that time period, in October of 1838, he actually leaves the church for a period of time to return later in June of 1839. When he leaves, he leaves with Thomas B. Marsh, and they go east. And during that time period, he really struggled in his heart. And he listened to the Spirit, and he came back. And there's this marvelous story where in June of 1839, the saints have been kicked out of Missouri. They're in Nauvoo, 
and he comes back and he walks up to Joseph's house to apologize for the the rift in their relationship. And Joseph just runs to him and forgives him. And Orson is brought back into the, the fellowship of the Council of the Twelve and into the good graces of Joseph. And later in 1840, goes on that mission to Jerusalem and dedicates uh, the land for the return of the Jews. Now, that happens on October 24th, 1841. And he went up to the Mount of Olives and he offered a prayer dedicating that land for their return. And what I find fascinating is when he dedicates the land in 1841, the Jews don't have a nation. They don't have a state. But about 100 years later, on May 14, 1948, David Ben-Gurion, head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel. And Harry S. Truman, president of the United States, recognized the nation on this day. About a year later, on May 11, 1949, Israel was admitted to the United Nations as a full member. Historically, this is a big deal that an apostle dedicates that land to the return of the Jews. And then a hundred years later, it happens. And if you go to Israel today, the Jews are there, like they've returned. Now, that, this is a lot of tension, a lot of political tension as well, because some of the nations that surround Israel don't even recognize its right to exist. But this is very much rooted in the Old Testament, which we're going to see later in section 68, that there's a lot of Old Testament stuff happening in the restoration of the gospel. I find it fascinating that an apostle with keys designated by the president of the church goes to open up that land, and it opens up in the Lord's timetable. And so as kind of an Old Testament nerd, I I love these texts where the Lord promises the land's going to be restored, there's going to be a temple, there's going to be fertility, and the Lord will reign. In preparation for that event, there has to be a nation of Israel. Now, they've been physically gathered, they haven't been spiritually gathered yet. But this is all part of the Lord and his moving of these pieces. And so Orson Hyde plays a role in that. Now, later he'll come back to America and he will go with the saints westward, and he will do some wonderful things. Uh, Brigham Young later will send him to some really difficult assignments, and he'll fulfill those. And Orson Hyde dies firm in the faith. Does he have a brief time in 1838 where he struggles? Absolutely. I don't think that's the focus of his life, but I like that we have that historical record of his struggle, because I think all of us as saints In following Jesus, we are going to stumble. A saint isn't somebody who's perfect, but it's someone who gets up. And it's an invitation to holiness. And I see Orson trying to fulfill that in his life. And there's so many things in his journals and his his accounts where he talks about his struggle to want to follow Jesus. And he just keeps moving forward and he keeps getting up. So that's a very brief sketch of Orson Hyde and who he is. But I think it's good for us to kind of see him coming out of this Campbellite movement. He's going to be put in juxtaposition next to Luke and Lyman Johnson, who are also going to struggle, but they're not going to stay with the church. And I think it's an invitation to us to be more like Orson, right? Yeah, and I, it, the Lord's going to say this about Oliver Kanger. The reality is this is true of so many of us. The Lord says, when he falls, not if, when he falls, he shall rise again. And then this great truth, 
for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase. And I think that just kind of describes that whole idea that it's where you are when you stand back up and the direction you're moving and where your heart is much more so than how far did you get. His sacrifice shall be more sacred to me than his increase. So great little tribute there to Orson Hyde, who comes up in section 68. The Lord then kind of gives us an absolute curveball here. As soon as he speaks to a bunch of the elders that were there at the conference and says, Amen, in verse 13, he says, Now, concerning the items in addition to the covenants and commandments. So he just says, get ready for some oddball items, but let's get them in the scriptures. And then he talks about literal descendants of Aaron having a right to the bishopric. And Mike and I will both freely admit we just don't know exactly what that means. What role will literal descendants of Aaron play in the restoration? Because right now, they don't play a role. But clearly, literal descendants of Aaron hold rights to the office of bishop and the temporal affairs of the church. But because we don't have literal descendants of Aaron, verse 19, this is where where we are today, but as a high priest of the Melchizedek priesthood has authority to officiate in all the lesser offices, he may officiate in the office of bishop when no literal descendant of Aaron can be found. So in the absence of a literal descendant of Aaron, a high priest can function in the office of a bishop. But does that suggest that someday... The bishoprics will be filled with literal descendants of Aaron. Mike, what does that mean? And why in the world does the Lord throw it in in section 68? If you're teaching gospel doctrine and you're worried about this question coming up in class, we put some quotes from the brethren in the show notes that you can read that are helpful to see that this probably applies to the presiding bishop. I'm with Bryce. I think we're in a space where there's a lot of things we don't know. And yet, historically, in the Old Testament... The Levitical priesthood was tied to families and clans and lineage, and it really can get really complicated. And so I reference a book in the show notes if you want to go down the scholarly route and you really want to pull on these threads, I but I would warn you, it gets complicated and messy. To be short in speaking, there was tension in the Old Testament over who the real Kohens were, the real priests, the Kohanim. There were the sons of Aaron, and then there were the Levites. And on a Venn diagram, the big circle would be the Levites, and a smaller circle inside that circle would be the sons of Aaron. And there was tension over who were the real Kohanim. And I don't know, I wasn't there, but I see that the tension, and it's laid out in the Old Testament. When we get to the Old Testament, we'll pull on some of these threads, but I'm with Bryce. I see in this revelation the Lord tying us to the Old Testament talking about literal descendancy, and I think it's going to be something that later in the millennium when we understand our lineage to Mother Eve and Father Adam, we'll have this stuff worked out. But right now I'm swimming in this big soup of I don't know. And so whenever I'm in front of a class and someone asks me that question, because I've had that question come up before, I generally go to those quotes from Joseph Fielding Smith and the other ones in the show notes that talk about the idea that this has something to do with the presiding bishopric. But I think there's so much more in here. I think what Bryce is saying is right, that this is tying us to the Old Testament 
And just because the Lord gives a revelation doesn't mean we understand all of it. Anyway, just a thought there. And I also turn to Article of Faith number nine. Do we really do believe all that God has revealed, all that he does now reveal? And then we believe he will yet reveal many great and important truths relative to the kingdom of God. More is coming. The restoration is ongoing. Um, I love this revelation given to John Taylor. I wish it would be included in the Doctrine and Covenants. It was not. But John Taylor received a revelation in 1883 that said, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither be ye concerned about the management and organization of my church and priesthood and the accomplishment of my work. Fear me and observe my laws, and I will reveal unto you from time to time, through the channels that I have appointed, everything that shall be necessary for the future development and perfection of my church." for the adjustment and rolling forth of my kingdom, and for the building up of the establishment of my Zion. For ye are my priesthood, and I am your God, even so. Amen. I love that revelation. The Lord says, I will reveal from time to time everything that shall be necessary for the future development and perfection of my church. Clearly, right now, the tribe of Joseph is the only one whose assignment we have been given. Joseph's assignment is to gather Israel. Apparently, someday, each of the tribes will assume their rightful assignment. And at that point, will the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron have rights of the bishopric? Maybe. But right now, our priority is to gather Israel. So, the Lord brings it up, but doesn't really answer the question, and that's okay, because we believe in an ongoing restoration. When I go to section 68, Bryce, I think the main point is the first part, the counsel given to the missionaries. I love the scripture thing about how you speak and the Lord will ratify it, it will be scripture. And then I love the counsel at the end, because clearly the Lord is saying, hey, parents, it's your job. It's your job to make sure. And notice what he says, teach them, verse 25, to understand. And I appreciate this the distinction that Elder Bednar brought up in one of his talks where he said, teaching is an activity. Yeah, it's good to teach your children, but really what our job is, is to teach them to understand. And that's a little bit different. That's more than just talking. And so as a parent, it's my job to teach my children to understand the doctrine of repentance, faith in Christ, the son of the living God, and of baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. And that's a law, verse 26, to anybody who's in Zion, and that the children are to be baptized. I think sometimes we think, okay, if my children are baptized, I've kind of done my job. But I think that that line in verse 25 where it says we're to teach them to understand is so critical. And frankly, I read verse 25, and every time I read it, it tugs at my heart because I realize I could do better. And it's an invitation to do better and to be better. And what kind of father am I? Am I really doing that? And frankly, I find myself falling short. And I think sometimes, Bryce, our ideas in our mind when it comes to parenting is the public school system, is go they're going to teach my kids. They're going to teach them morals and ethics. The church and the seminaries, they're going to teach my kids. They're going to get a testimony. And it's kind of their job. And I see it in this verse where the Lord says, no, that's not how it works. The church, we are to support you in your role, but as a parent, that's your stewardship. And 
these are Heavenly Father's kids. These are his children that he's giving us stewardship over, and it's a, it's a mighty responsibility. And frankly, I read these verses, Bryce, and my heart trembles a little bit because, frankly, I got I to gotta, I gotta do better. And there really is a heaviness to this, because at the end of verse 25, he says, look, I will hold parents accountable if they don't do this. I will put the sins of the children on the parents. There is a heavy responsibility of parenthood. Teachers, the church, everyone can help, but it rests on parents. I love Boyd K. Packer who said, our father's plan requires that the shield of faith is to be made and fitted in the family. No two can be exactly alike. Each must be handcrafted to individual specifications. The plan designated by the Father contemplates that man and woman, husband and wife, working together, fit each child individually with a shield of faith made to buckle on so firmly that it can neither be pulled off nor penetrated by those fiery darts. It takes the steady strength of a father to hammer out the metal of it and the tender hands of a mother to polish and fit it on. In the church, we can teach about the materials from which the shield of faith is made, reverence, courage, chastity, repentance, forgiveness, compassion. In the church, we can learn how to assemble and fit them together, but the actual making of and fitting on of the shield of faith belongs in the family circle. Otherwise, it may loosen and come off in a crisis. That is the responsibility of parents. We have to save our children. Now, I find it fascinating how significant Jacob took the responsibility to teach or else he'd be held accountable. So priesthood leaders and parents kind of have that same responsibility. Listen to how Jacob felt about his responsibility to teach or be held accountable. In Jacob chapter 1, he says, now think about parenthood here. This is the attitude that parents should have. Jacob says, we did magnify our office unto the Lord, taking upon us the responsibility, answering the sins of the people upon our own heads, if we did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Wherefore, by laboring with our might, their blood might not come upon our garments. Otherwise, their blood would come upon our garments, and we would not be found spotless at the last day. Now, imagine that being applied to parents, that I am going to labor with all my might so that I don't have to answer the sins of my children. I'm just going to teach them to understand so that their responsibility is theirs. I've done my job. But we do need to understand the significance of the responsibility of being parents. It's also a focus of what really matters in life. On our deathbed, are we really going to be thinking about how much money we made or about our relationships? Like what really matters? And so it's a great invitation to build Zion, and Zion is built with families. I love it. Now, there is a great message in section 69 that can go unnoticed if you don't really ponder it for a moment. Notice in verse 1, he says, It is not wisdom in me that he should be entrusted with the commandments and the monies which he shall carry unto the land, except one go with him. 
In other words, you're going to take money. It's like the clerk who gathers the tithing money, and there's a lot of cash, and I'm going to go to the bank to deposit it. I'm always going to take someone with me. And the idea is there is a temptation if I'm carrying the church's money that I'm going to take it and use it and maybe spend it on myself. So to avoid the temptation, take someone with you. And this really does speak at a very important gospel principle about not putting yourself in a position where temptation might overcome you, not walking into a situation where I am not fully prepared to deal with the temptations that may come. So be wise and take a companion with you because you'll be less likely to steal the money if someone's there watching you. The night of the atonement, Jesus announces to the twelve, all of you will be offended by me tonight. And Peter says, I won't be. Though all men might be, I won't be. In other words, oh, I would never steal the money. I'll be fine. I'll never fall into temptation. It's okay. I don't need to take the extra precautions. Sometimes we're like Peter and we say, though all men might, I won't. So I'm not going to be extra precautious. Jesus must have just shaken his head and looked at Peter because then he said, Peter, before the cock crows, you will deny me thrice. So not only will you be offended by me, but before the cock crows, you will deny me. And And Peter's like, no. (laughs) response was, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And we do the same thing. I'm so confident that I'm not going to fall. So that night, where did Peter go? Overconfident in his determination to not deny and fall short. Where did Peter go? Did he go home and spend the night with his family? Did he hang around a whole group of the Quorum of the Twelve? Did he put himself in an environment that would help him be faithful? Peter did not. He walked into one of the most vulnerable positions he could put himself in. He walked right into Caiaphas's palace. And there he denied knowing Jesus three times. And I think what section 69 is trying to say is beware of Peter-like overconfidence. Beware of the temptation to insist that others might fall, but I won't, so I'm not going to take the extra precaution. Take the extra precaution, and don't put yourself in a situation where you might fall, where the temptation might be too much. Don't walk into Caiaphas's palace, not that night. Peter would have been better served surrounding himself with the kind of people who would lifted him up, not tempted him to deny knowing the Savior. Now, I don't want to get into, well, how would the history have changed and it was important for Peter. I get that. But the lesson for all of us is don't let your overconfidence put you in a position where you are careless and not cautious about the potential danger. It fascinates me that one of the first thing Alma says to his son Corianton 
after he commits fornication with Isabel is that he boasted in his own strength. Don't be the one that in your overconfidence that I'm not going to fail doesn't take the precautions. Take John Whitmer with you. It's just better to have someone with you when you carry the church's money. It's a great application. The whole time you were talking, it just made me realize what a blessing it is that I have my wife, Sonia. To go through mortality with your companion is just, I can't even with words express the strength that is. It's just a beautiful thing. So it's, you know, it's also the value of friends and good companionship. And anyway, I love that application. So section 70, this revelation was what was essentially the first scripture committee of the church. What this was, it's going to be called the literary firm. It created a joint stewardship over the modern scriptures. And this firm included the prophet, his scribes, and the church printer. This joint stewardship or oversight committee was responsible for any plans or decisions involving the revelations and their publication. The firm was responsible for publishing them to the world, and they were also to be compensated for their labors from whatever profits the sales of the copies generated. So this joint stewardship was a financial partnership, and it was organized upon the principles of the law of consecration. And so the idea was that whatever profit that these scriptures made, that the money would be divided in such a way that those that were giving their time would be compensated. And that's where verse 12 comes in. In verse 12 of section 70, it says, he who is appointed to administer spiritual things, the same is worthy of his hire. And so I think sometimes in the church, we often tend to forget that the context for the unpaid aspect of the church really goes back to this general distrust of paid clergy at the time of Joseph Smith. And it really was something that kind of came out of the Protestant view of Catholicism. And so most early members of the church had a real distrust of paid clergy. And so in the church today, we have what's called a lay ministry, meaning your bishop and stake president are not drawing a paycheck, but there are people that are compensated in the church to run the affairs of the church. But on the local level, that certainly isn't the case. But in the early church, some of the early saints that ran the affairs of the church were paid. And that was something that happened uh, because, like we said in verse 12, he that administers spiritual things, the same is worthy of his hire. That's actually coming out of Luke chapter 10, verse 7, if you want to go and read that. Obviously, missionaries went without purse or scrip. Obviously, they gave great sacrifices. But yes, Joseph Smith was compensated in a sense to take care of the affairs of the church, starting from as you know as early as when the Knight family's helping him and, and Martin Harris and others, as well as early leaders of the church. And so this idea of an unpaid lay ministry and the way the finances of the church worked historically isn't one seamless narrative. It's very complicated with lots of different methods or means of ways of obtaining money and even different methods of how to administer the financial affairs of the church. And so in the show notes, we link this and there's a short article called A Brief History of Tithing where you can kind of go through and see the development of how this occurred. But just to be short in speaking, 
As early as 1837, the presiding bishop defined tithing as 2% of one's net worth after deducting debts. This was voluntary. Bring 2% of your worth, and that's going to be your tithing. And then in section 119 in 1838, tithing was redefined as all of your surplus property and then one-tenth of your interest annually. And then in 1844, the official proclamation was that all saints were immediately to pay a one-time tithe of one-tenth of their property and money to the church. And so over time, the idea of how tithing worked did develop. As late as the late 1890s, there were local officers of the church that did draw some form of a salary from the funds of the church because of the time that they were putting into their calling. And I think they use verse 12 as kind of that rule, for he who is appointed to administer spiritual things, the same is worthy of his hire. And so in 1896, the First Presidency announced the end of salaries for local officers of the church. And really, tithing as we now know it comes into fruition during Lorenzo Snow's administration. In 1899, and he gives that famous speech that everyone must pay tithing. That's kind of the brief picture. The beginnings of this is really some of these sections like section 70, where the Lord gives a mission. You're to produce these texts. This didn't just happen. As you remember from talking about the publication of the Book of Mormon, producing printed pages was a very intense endeavor, and it certainly wasn't something that was free. This costs money. And so how do we do this? How do we have a church that's administering spiritual things, and yet we live in this temporal world? Well, we set up the literary firm. Well, to do that, if we're going to have a printer and a printing press and we're going to have people working full time, they're going to have to feed their families. And so I think that's important. I just think it's so important for us to see that the Lord gives this mission, go and do this. And some of the details are laid out in here, but some of them aren't. And so the literary firm has to sit down and draw up articles to figure out how they're going to navigate these waters. And so that's an important historical thing to look at with Section 70. I don't think it's the main message. Bryce, why don't you talk a little bit about the Lord's storehouse? Let's go back to verse 11. I love what Mike just talked about. The way I'd like to just finish out section 70 is the Lord brings up a fascinating concept. Here in this, the guise of, okay, now we've created a committee that's going to take care of the publication of the Scriptures. And that's a temporal thing. But the Lord talks about a bigger picture. So we've all, we're familiar with the concept of a bishop's storehouse, that the bishop has a storehouse in which people can go in and take food and necessities of life. So those people who don't have food to eat or they've struggled with a loss of income or whatever, this church has bishop storehouses all over that, are, that will allow people who have a need to go in and get the food that their family needs. Those are bishop storehouses. But in verse 11, the Lord brings up a fascinating concept about the Lord's storehouse, not the bishop's storehouse. The Lord's storehouse is what he has in his inventory to bless his children. And the reality is every one of us are in the Lord's storehouse. Every ability that I have 
is part of the Lord's storehouse. Every possession that I have, everything that I am is at the Lord's disposal, and He can call on that to bless His saints. I am at His disposal, and I give myself to Him. And if I have something that can benefit someone else, Lord, call on me. It's not just money or time. It's everything that I am. Lord, here I am. You may have me. So put yourself in the Lord's storehouse. Put all your abilities, your time, your talents, even your money in the Lord's storehouse and say, Lord, I'm at your disposal. I am available for you to call upon me to help anyone in need. I am in the Lord's storehouse. And so I'd love to end with section 82, where the Lord kind of throws out a challenge that all of us need to improve ourselves so that we can give everything that we have to the Lord. So verse 18 of section 82, he says, and all this for the benefit of the church of the living God that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even a hundredfold, to be cast into the Lord's storehouse, to become the common property of the whole church. Let's improve ourselves every day. Let's educate ourselves and grow and improve. Let's be the very best people we can so that I can throw all of those abilities and all of those talents and everything that I have obtained into the Lord's storehouse. And anyone who needs it can have access to it. Let's see ourselves as I am at the Lord's disposal and all that I am, I am waiting for him to call upon me to serve. I freely give it to him. And when he needs me, I will be ready. I am in the Lord's storehouse. So I just, I love that concept. May all of us strive to be more and more available to the Lord, to become a tool in his chest whenever he needs us. That's a great invitation. And with that, we thank you for sharing your time with us as we've covered these sections. Hopefully the things that we've talked about have resonated with you and you felt the spirit of these revelations. We will see you again next week when we cover sections 71 through 75. Thanks and have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.